Would you join with me in prayer as we begin our time together in the study of God's word this morning? Father in heaven, we pray, O God, that you this morning would open our hearts, that we would long to walk in the light and on the path that you have lit for us. We pray this in your son's name, amen. You can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we are going to be looking at verses 8 to 10. These are familiar verses for us, but we will be looking at those verses this week. And um, last week, we, we examined, we thought through, we meditated on the, tru- meditated on the truth of uh, grace alone. That is, God saves us by his grace alone. We are saved by God's grace alone. That is, we bring nothing to the Lord to contribute to our salvation, as it has been said, except our sin. And the Lord saves us, not because of anything within us, but because of his grace. The very motive of God in saving you, in saving any of us, is his grace. And this week we want to move and we want to ask the question, how do we receive all that God in his grace has supplied? It is one thing to know that God in his grace has sent his son into the world and that son where we have disobeyed, he has obeyed. And he is perfectly righteous and yet though he was righteous, yet he went to the cross intentionally, deliberately for sinners to die in our place, to bear the punishment that we deserved. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead, showing that his death, actually accomplished what he said it did to show that everything he said in his life was true for anybody can claim to be the to be the son of god anybody can claim to be divine anyone can claim to have authority to forgive sins as jesus did but no one other than jesus has risen from the dead and has lived for all eternity ascended into heaven and Christ has done just that. But the question is, how do, we, how do we receive all that Jesus accomplished for ourselves? How is it applied to us? How does God in his grace apply the work of Jesus for us? How can we know that we are saved? By what means? Maybe you have someone in your life who you ask a question to and they give you an answer that begins like back when I was a kid and they tell you the entire story of, you know, something, too much information, too much background information. Maybe you have a friend or someone you know like that. Kids, maybe that's your parent. Why do we do this? And you're just simply looking for a a simple, straightforward answer and they go back to when they were kids or when their parents were kids and they start telling you the history and you're just thinking, uh, you, you lost me. I don't care anymore. Well, let me be that person for just a moment because there is some background to this question that is absolutely helpful for us. And it begins, we're not gonna begin with Adam and Eve in creation. We're, we're gonna begin in 1505 with a law student traveling 
across a field caught in a thunderstorm. This law student, Martin Luther, by name, his dad was a businessman. His dad was very interested in his son rising, being, being raised at an economic level, becoming increasingly important. And so he pressured his son to become a law student, to become a lawyer. And so his son, pressured by dad, becomes, goes to school as a law student on his way to become a lawyer. But while he is traveling in open country at one point, a thunderstorm, a fierce storm springs up around him and a lightning bolt strikes nearby, tosses him from his horse into the mud as the rain begins to pour down and he cries out to St. Anne to help him, to, to save him from lightning. And he, and he promises that if he will be spared, he will give his life to God and he will join the monastery. His life is spared, he joins the monastery to his father's great disappointment. And, you know, one of the things that we see is that though his father is very disappointed in him, the Lord loves to use children who are a disappointment to their parents. And Luther goes on to become a monk, and not just any ordinary monk, but a a monk with exacting standards for himself. He puts all of the other Men in his monastery to shame with how intentionally he lives every aspect of his life. When he works, he works harder than everyone else. Whatever he did, he gave everything. And it was a point of contention between him and the other monks. Even when he confessed his sin and he was going to to give confession to one of the other leaders... And he would go and he would spend hours in confession, confessing everything that came to his mind, every thought, every deed, every desire that was wayward. And, and Luther was very introspective and he began to peer into his soul and he began to see only more and more that was displeasing to God. This exhausted the individuals who had to hear his confession. And they were giving hours of their day to listening to minutia. Minutia that was just boring them to death. In fact, one time, one of his confessors told Luther to leave him alone, go back to his room until he had a real sin to confess. While everyone else was more than satisfied with their own standing, Luther was not. He was broken. He was a broken man. But two things happened, or or I should say, one thing happened that resulted in two dramatic shifts and changes in the positive for Luther. Luther was sent to Wittenberg, where he would go on to serve. And there, two things happened that are very important. The first is his confessor became a man by the name of Johann van Staupitz. And Staupitz, he probably exhausted with Luther as well with his confessing, Staupitz was the first one to urge Luther to go and confess his sins directly to Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to fathom if if you have been a Christian for any length of time, but that was revolutionary. The gall to be able to approach Jesus himself. And yet Luther was pointed to confess his sins to Christ. The second thing that happened to Luther that is 
critical to his growth is that he was he had finally earned his degree, his doctorate in biblical theology. He was now equipped and able to teach others the Bible. The reason this is important is because this finally allowed Luther the freedom to have access to the Bible. So let me put it to you clearly. Up to this point, Luther didn't have access himself to the scriptures. It was only as he was now had his degree in the Bible that he was given the opportunity to study the Bible for himself so he could teach it. That's like going to a surgeon and him saying, I've never done this before. I'm looking forward to trying. Luther was instructed, he was given the freedom to, to, to uh, he was given the responsibility to teach from, uh, to teach the book of Psalms as well as the book of Romans. And in teaching these books, it began to work heavily in him, Romans and Galatians especially. And when he came to that passage that Mike Costantino read for us earlier, that was a difficult passage for him to get around. The righteousness of God is a phrase that is used multiple times in the book of Romans. And this is what he says about his struggle with that phrase, the righteousness of God. He, he saw the righteousness of God as something to be feared. He saw it as the justice or the righteousness of God, whereby God righteously judges those who are unrighteous. And Luther knew from his reading of the Bible that no one could be righteous. So if the righteousness of God is simply his righteousness, where he, through righteousness, judges those who aren't righteous, that means there's no hope. And Luther... Luther was frustrated. Listen to what he says. And it's a lengthy quote, but it's, it's important. This is his breakthrough moment, okay? He says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him, that it was, would assuage God's wrath. Therefore, I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant when he talked about the righteousness of God. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through sheer grace and sheer mercy, God justifies, and as he declares righteous, those, uh, he justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through an open door into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in open in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger or 
ungraciousness. What Luther discovered for himself and recovered for Christians everywhere is that the only way for us to be righteous in God's sight, for us to have the grace of God applied to us, is through faith and faith alone. There is a a painting. Here it is. This is by uh, Edward Ward. It's a 19th century painting. This hangs in a, in a, in a, in a gallery in, uh, in the college in which I attended and graduated. We were required as freshmen to spend so much time in the art gallery. And I have to be honest, as a freshman, I had a lot of other things I wanted to do other than spend time in an art gallery. But I was, I was there, this painting was hanging on the wall and it struck me and it has continued to be to me just a beautiful image of what Luther discovered at this moment. You can, you can see what is happening there up in the, if you, if you look up in the corner there on the, on the right hand side, you see a, an hourglass. Do you see it over there? Some of you, maybe in the back, sorry, you're, you're, you're a bit too far, but there's an hourglass there and, and the sands have all fallen to the bottom. It's almost as if to picture that time is up. You might say the time of darkness is up. And what you do with an hourglass is you you turn it over. And a new time is about to begin. At this moment, the sands of the darkness have finally fallen completely. And the light is about to become and, and shine. And you can see the light illuminating Luther's face as he's got his finger to the page of Scripture. And you might also notice that there is a chain on the Scripture a chain chaining it to the podium, the lectern on which he is reading. And, and that is an accurate presentation or picture. The, the, the scriptures were incredibly valuable in that day and age. Still are, but in that time, the, reproducing a Bible was difficult. It was costly, and so to secure it, it would often be chained. But it pictures something else. That up till now, the, the, the word of God had been bound, and people had been bound from it. But Luther, at this moment, in this artist's rendition or picture, he is recovering, discovering for himself this beautiful picture, this beautiful doctrine that we are justified, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. That's good, brother. You can take that picture off. It is my hope and it has been my prayer that this week, this morning, we too will not only grasp this truth a little better, but we will grasp its implications for us and we will rejoice in it all the more. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of places throughout Old Testament new we could anchor ourselves and see this unpacked for us. But we are going to look and spend our time this morning in just three verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. But before we get to verse 8, it would be helpful for us to back up just a little bit and to see what has fueled God, remember what has fueled the Lord in his work of salvation of sinners. And we see this in verses, in the first five verses. In verse 3 verses, we see what we are before the Lord. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, children deserving wrath, just as all the others. And then in the, we see the action of God, the motive of God in saving sinners in the next few verses. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And verse 6 and 7, they give us the foundation by which God saves us. So if 1 to 5 give us the fuel, that which fuels the Lord in saving sinners, verses 6 and 7 give us the foundation of God's act of saving sinners. And we'll look more at that next week. But what we want to look at this week is the furrow, that is the channel, the way, the means through which salvation flows to sinners. And what we will discover is that it is not anything except faith and faith alone. And we see that in verse 8, do not? For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is, we can break it down into four fundamental parts. What, what is this thing that we call faith? It involves content. That is, to have genuine saving faith, you have to know things. There are facts or there are truths that you must know. That is, you must know that God is holy. You must know that you are a sinner. You must know who Jesus is, that he is the only son of God who has come into the world, who has obeyed God, who, and who has died in the place of sinners and risen from the grave. And by knowing those things, that is the very first aspect of faith. Without that knowledge, you cannot be saved. But salvation is more than just content. Salvation requires conviction. That is, we must, we must see that these things are not just true, but that they are true for us. That is, we must be absolutely convinced that Christ is able to save us. We must be absolutely convicted that we are sinners, that we deserve God's judgment. And if we see that faith has content and faith requires conviction, then we must also see that faith demands commitment. Faith, true faith, demands commitment. This means moving past merely head knowledge, knowing who God is, knowing that Christ is, and even being convinced that Christ is able to save us. This moves past that and now we are committing ourselves to him. We might say it this way. We are submitting ourselves to him. God has said, this is the way you must be saved. And we are submitting ourselves to the word of God. God says, I provide through Christ's work. I provide the way of salvation. And we submit ourselves to Christ's work. Not trying to add to it. 
But faith is conviction. It is submission. Lastly, it involves cherishing. It involves treasuring. That is faith, true faith, does not approach God. It doesn't approach Jesus merely looking to get out of something. It's not an escape hatch. I don't want to experience God's judgment. Therefore, I want Jesus. And, that, and that's it. Jesus, in that case, is only a ticket out of judgment. He is only a, a crutch that we use and once we no longer need the crutch, no longer the injury is present, then we can move on with our lives, dispose of the crutch. No, true faith treasures Christ. It cherishes him. It adores him. It has an an affection for him. It involves content to be believed. It involves conviction that that content, that those facts are true. Commitment to Christ and a cherishing of Christ. John Murray put it this way, faith is the whole-souled movement of self-commitment to Christ for salvation, for sin, from sin's consequences. For, from sin and its consequences. And Martin Luther put it this way, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that it would stake its life on it a thousand times over. This is what faith is. It is not merely head knowledge. Kids, this is, this is especially important for you. You know, adults, this is just as important for us. So many people know about Jesus. They come from religious homes. There is a latent memory in our culture about what Christians believe about Christ dying on the cross. Mere knowledge, even mere conviction of those things doesn't save. Our knowledge doesn't impress God. Our conviction that those things are true doesn't impress the Lord. No. It involves commitment. It involves cherishing. It involves staking our life on Christ a thousand times over. And finding him sure and certain. We see that faith also is here. It is the channel by which salvation flows. It is not the foundation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's a big difference. Not on faith, but through faith. It is the channel by which the entire work of God in saving sinners flows to us. We are justified through faith. We are adopted into God's family through faith alone. We are cleansed and forgiven of all sin and shame through faith alone. We are united to Christ through faith alone. We are accepted and reconciled to God on faith alone. And too often, Christians, we, through our terminology, we, we seem to be confused by what we are saved. Faith is the channel. It is not the foundation. 
That is, we are not saved by our faith. We are not saved upon the foundation of our faith. We are saved through faith. Faith is not a work we do. It is not something we trust in to save us. Christ alone saves us. We do not trust in our trust. Remember a young woman years ago coming to me asking for counsel, asking how she could know that she was a believer. She was earnestly feeling the fact that that she was unworthy of God's grace to her in Christ and she was seeing how her life just didn't measure up though she was trying to please the Lord. And as we talked and I was trying to draw from her what it was she was trusting in, her answer to why she thought she might be a Christian and, and might be saved was because she had once believed in Christ. She had prayed to him. She had walked an aisle to receive him. She had done what her church had said was necessary. And so he switched the question from what have you done? Why, you know, in the past, what, what is it right now? Because our faith isn't something past. It needs to be present. Are we trusting in Christ at this moment? We do not trust in something we once did. We do not trust even in our, the strength of our faith or the sincerity of our faith. Or the completeness of our faith. We trust only in the object of our faith. Christ and Christ alone. And it is through faith alone that we see effort, our role, our effort get unpacked in these passages. Look with me again at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Or as the ESV says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You know, now scholars and commentators are divided on what the this is in that line. What is it that he's referring to? What is the, the this is not your own doing? Or what is the that of not of yourselves? What is he referring to? Is it faith? Many have believed that what he's referring to is faith. That faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And certainly uh, Philippians one twenty nine shows us this truth. Acts 16.27 will undergird this truth that faith is a gift. Many scholars have believed that, that what Paul is trying to teach us is that even our own faith we can't take credit for. And that is certainly true, but there is reasons why that may not be the case, that he is not referring to faith, even though it is the most immediate word before. And the reason for that is what we have, that the genders our, our, our language, English, doesn't have gendered language so much. That is, we don't have, well, don't tell that to too many people in the world, but our, our words uh, don't show a, a feminine and a masculine, and, and Greek has not just a feminine and a masculine form for words, it also will have a, what's called a neuter. It is neither feminine nor masculine. And the this here, or the that, depending on what translation you have, is neuter. It's neither feminine nor masculine. Faith, however, is feminine. I'm sorry, 
Yes, faith is feminine. It doesn't seem to fit. What we do find is that the this does match up with the word grace earlier in the sentence. By grace you have been saved through faith. And the point is not that God's grace is the gift, but that the entire phrase is the gift. By grace you have been saved through faith. That the gift is God's grace. That the gift is the work of salvation. That the gift includes faith. That all of it is part of the gift. That there is nothing in salvation that is achieved by us. That is initiated by us. The point is that God's grace as a gift was completed and begun by God and God alone as a gift. Too often we can sometimes view Faith as a transaction. God has salvation. I have faith. If I will give him my faith, then he will give me his salvation. Paul wants us to to not have that view here. Faith is not something we bring to the table. It is something that God produces in us by his grace. It is not a transaction that, that we exchange something that we have. Salvation isn't our achievement. It is a gift from first to last. Not only is it not an achievement, it is not a reward for our effort. We see this in verse 9. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You know, there's a common mindset in the world that we can, through our own effort, our own standing, that we can increase our security with God. That if we will try to be a good person, if we will fulfill all righteous, righteous requirements, if we become more religious, then God will owe us something. That he will reward us with things. That salvation is somehow a reward for being good and doing good. But everywhere in the Bible, this is denounced. Salvation is not by our own effort. It is through faith alone. We contribute nothing. Our work, our sweat, our effort adds nothing to it. Indeed, the more, the more sweat we put into our salvation, the farther away it gets. Because we were relying on something other than Christ alone through faith alone. Friend, we are not saved by our effort. Our effort gives us nothing, not a reward. It is not an achievement. We are not saved by our effort. We are saved by effort, just not our own. We are saved by the effort of Christ, the work of Christ. He who gave himself... Every day he lived, he lived to the Lord. He tells those who are around him, I do only what I see my father doing. There was not a single moment in Jesus' life when he disobeyed. He was completely obedient to the entire law of God, fulfilling it to the last command. 
fulfilling it to his last breath. And though he was perfect, though he was sinless, though he was righteous in God's sight, yet he died on the cross so that all who trust in him, he bears their punishment. And all who trust on him through faith are granted his righteousness to their account. So that we have come to the Lord, if we have trusted in Christ, we come to him not with righteousness of our own, but with a righteousness that does not belong to us. The righteousness of Christ. Does this seem unfair to you? I hope it does. So often we accuse the Lord of unfairness. I'm trying to be good. Why would you do this to me? But there has only ever been one good person And he died on our behalf so that we might be accepted and awarded and loved with with love that we do not deserve. Granted righteousness that is not ours. You might say, Pastor, you you don't know me. I'm a high maintenance person. I I don't love the Lord as he commands. I, I don't read my Bible I'm not, I'm not religious enough. I don't, I don't pray enough. And the, the very first two commands that Christ gives, the greatest commands, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I, I fall short in that every day. And if you don't know that you do, you do. And that second command, to love others the way we love ourselves, we might say, I don't gather regularly with Christians the way that God commands. I get angry and irritated easily. I'm anxious. I, don't really, I haven't really learned to trust God at, at all times and in all circumstances. I'm not content with God and what, with what he has given me like he commands. I'm always looking for something else to make me happy. I want more stuff. I lie. I lust. I'm way too self-centered. I'm a hypocrite. I have deep scars of big problems. I'm a high-maintenance person. Friend, I want to assure you today that God has only ever rescued and saved high-maintenance people. There is not a person on this planet that the Lord has had grace on that is not a high-maintenance person. We wake every day needing the grace of God every day. And he has saved us all the same way, not through ourselves, but through Christ and Christ alone. This way, he says, there is no room for boasting. There's no room for pride here. If it's through salvation flowing to us through the empty hands of faith, there is nothing then that we can brag about. There is no strutting in heaven. We come humbly or we don't come at all. None of us have made a positive contribution to our salvation. For it is not our achievement nor is it a reward for our effort. But I want us to see that just because our effort plays no part into us being saved, that our effort, that this doesn't mean that our effort doesn't play a part 
in us, in our salvation. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Friend, we are not saved by, God work, by good works. We are saved for God work, good works. In and through Jesus, God has rescued and redeemed us. He has made us new. We are new creations. And he has saved us not because we have applied the right effort in the right places, but he has saved us so that now we might work out what he has done in us. Good works are not the foundation for our salvation, but they are, as the old London Baptist Confession says, they are the fruit and evidence of it. And this changes, this truth that we are not saved by good works, but that we are saved for good works, that we are saved through faith alone, this changes everything for us. In our, in our world, we get something if we give something. If we work for it, if we desire it enough, if we are loyal enough, if, if you will get a free coffee if you spend so much, or a free sandwich if you buy so many, or a free pizza if you purchase so many, or however it is at your favorite restaurant or whatever you tend to purchase. But we are given salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone. None of our effort, none of our right connections, our family name, none of our religiosity, none of it matters. The Pope himself will be condemned by God if he does not trust in Christ alone for his salvation. On our best day and on our worst day, we come to the Lord not because we are worthy, but because we come by his grace through faith. But not only this, Faith alone doesn't just free us to come to the Lord, doesn't just free us from fear that our effort isn't enough. It frees us actually to apply effort. You see, one major area or error is that we, because we are saved by faith alone and not because of our effort, that that means we can just live however we want. And there are many who call themselves Christians that take that approach Christ saved me, now I'm going to live and do as I please. But we are saved for good works. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us that we are to strive, that is to make every effort to increase in holiness. Because without that holiness, we will not see the Lord. Friends, we will not be saved because of our good works, but we will not be saved without them either. We are saved by faith, through faith alone, for good works. And that we are saved by faith alone fuels our humility. 
our humility before God, knowing that we gathered this morning. And the fact that you are here is not some kind of achievement for you. There is no patch that will be sewn onto your eternal eternal garment to mark that you had perfect attendance in 2021 or you are over whatever percentage of attendance. No, we are here only because of God's grace. And God hears us only because of his grace through faith. And if we have no room for boasting and pride before God, then we have no room for boasting and pride with one another either. Because we all come to the Lord in the same way. As sinners needing salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone. More than this, it gives us confidence. Humility before God but confidence, boldness. If we approach the Lord, not by what we do, but through faith and in Christ alone, that gives us freedom to prayer. All of a sudden, we, will, we can be assured that he hears us. And that he will answer our prayer, not because of our own righteousness, but because of his mercy. All of a sudden, our failure doesn't mean disaster for us. We can trust the Lord and and take risks. We can take risks for him. This is the idea that's, that's riding under that story that Christ tells in the Gospel of Matthew with the talents where one servant is given so much, so much, and another servant, uh, another amount, and the other servant is given just one talent. And two of the servants, they go and they make investments. And when the master returns, those investments pay off and they are praised for it. And they make those investments because they believe that their master is good. But the third servant, he, he doesn't invest in it. He doesn't invest, he doesn't do anything with what his master has given him. Rather, he believes his master is not a good man. And so he buries that talent. He does not believe that his master is good. He does not love his master. But the two who do, knowing who their God is, knowing who their master is, knowing that he is good, they make risks. They invest. And so we too, we can invest Take risks. Do what God calls us to do, even though it may feel a little risky. To give more than what may seem sensible. To help someone else out, even when that costs us something. Because we are trusting the Lord. We can have assurance that our confessions are heard And we can know that because we are saved by faith alone, that the mission of the Lord that he has given to us to make disciples of all nations, that it will continue to go on. Because the mission is to make disciples and how are disciples made? It is through faith alone, is it not? It is not through some grand achievement that some people will will be able to work for. 
It is not through some status that they themselves must attain. No, it is only through faith. Because it is faith alone, that means success doesn't depend on them and it doesn't depend on you. So when you share the gospel to that person, and in the back of your mind you're thinking, this person will never hear it. Or I have talked to them about Christ numerous times and it always seems to fall off their back like water on a duck and nothing ever seems to take hold. What's the point? Our faith is not in them. And our faith is not in ourselves. That if we will just explain everything the right way and have all the right arguments and all the right methods, then, then we will finally have success and be able to talk to others about Christ. Our faith isn't in us. It is in the Lord to do his work that he has been doing from the time before Christ and through Christ and since Christ. That God's people have only ever come to God by and through faith alone. This is the good news of faith alone. Grace alone through faith alone. This is a salvation worth having. This is a savior worth living our lives for. This is a king worth serving and worshiping. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we marvel that you have had such mercy on us, such grace, and that you have, through your grace, opened up the way for us to come to you, not through own achievement or effort, but ultimately only through faith in Christ. Oh God, your your mercy is abundant. Your grace is astounding. Thank you, O Father. Thank you for your grace to us in Christ Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.